Thank you, Pastor Charlie. Good morning, church. If you will, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 11 as we can continue our series through this particular passage. This past week, I uh, was listening to an interview of a pretty recognizable media figure, and he was talking about uh, a recent um, interest that he has had in reading through the Bible. And as someone who grew up as an Episcopalian, uh, was wondering why in the world did they never read this in our church services? Uh, and how he was over uh, just consumed with the, the drama that you find through the scriptures. And he, he quickly read through the New Testament. He was at this point when he was being interviewed was uh, somewhere in the, the, the Pentateuch and the Old Testament. And as I was listening to this, I was one, glad to know that there are still those who are discovering the word of God and finding it to be living and powerful. Uh, and at the same time, I was also saddened as I was reminded that there are so many churches, not just in our country, but around the world that have abandoned the word of God. And that as we have an opportunity here at Cornerstone to regularly plow through, not, not just simply walk over ground, but we plow through it we study it and we, we seek the Lord uh, and his spirit to give us wisdom as we do so. And when, even as we come to passages like today in, in 1 Samuel, it, it won't be the first chapter that we've gone through where it's hard for us in our culture to relate uh, to the specifics in each individual's life or in, in, in the particular land in which these people are living. But at the same time, the biblical truth that the Holy Spirit has inspired for us and has given to us and has preserved for us is, is, doesn't change. It gives us hope today, just as they took hope in what the Spirit was speaking 3,000 years ago. Thankfully, we have it nicely preserved in black and white print that we can read and we can share. But nonetheless, as we think about our passage today, I hope that, that we will take heart in knowing that regardless of the narrative, regardless of the characters that are part of that narrative, regardless of, of the plot that's going on, that we understand that God has revealed to us his plan of redemptive work that brings us all into the family of God as he opens our eyes to see it and to understand it and to believe it and to obey it. And it changes us and not only changes us in this life, but as we've already been talking about and as we just recently sang about, we have a hope of something much better. So let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 11 together, beginning in verse 1, as uh, we continue this saga of Saul's arrival to the throne, which interestingly enough, it still hasn't happened yet, seeming. Yeah, just, it's just, we know it's about to happen, but it just keeps on dangling there in front of us, wondering when it's gonna happen. Well, we're getting closer to that. We're getting closer to that, right? But in verse one, now Nahash, the Ammonite, came up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a covenant with us and we will serve you. 
But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, I will make it with you on this condition, that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you, thus I will make it a reproach on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days, that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. Then the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Wow. So here we go. We have Nahash, who is an Ammonite. He goes up and besieges Jabesh Gilead, which is part of the promised land. Now, this is not the first occasion in which the Israelites had an encounter with the Ammonites. As a matter of fact, let's just quickly review who these Ammonites were and the significance of them. We go back all the way back to Genesis chapter 19. Uh, this is the account of Lot and his family who were living in the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham prayed to God that, uh, that there, would, you know, there would be a salvation of this area if there were just 10 righteous people. God agreed that there weren't. And as Lot took his family away from there, and we remember Lot's wife because Jesus tells us to remember Lot's wife, and we remember her because she turned back, turned into a pillar of salt. But Lot and his daughters continued on away from the area. But both, we find in verses 36 through 38 of Genesis chapter 19, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. They were wanting to make sure they could continue the family line and in their sinfulness, which obviously was an outgrowth of their upbringing in such a horrendous place like Sodom and Gomorrah. They became pregnant by their father and the younger of his daughters bore a son and called his name Ben Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. So this is a group of people who, if they did their genealogy DNA test, they would track it all the way back to the younger daughter of Lot through an incestuous relationship. In Deuteronomy chapter two, as God is preparing his people to go into the promised land, he tells Moses in Deuteronomy 2.19, and when you approach the territory of the people of Ammon, do not harass them or contend with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the sons of Lot for a possession. Now, this wasn't because they did something good and God was going to say, hey, you, you're going to be rewarded with a plot of land. He secluded them. And God said, when you go into the promised land, don't you even go close to that place because that's their place. I have secluded them over there because of their uncleanness from just who they were. In the, in the time of the judges, in chapter 10, in Judges chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, the people of Israel get, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals of, and the Ashtaroth, the god of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites. Now, you can only imagine what type of gods the Ammonites would have based on who they were. 
and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. The Ammonites, like these other areas within the, where in the land of Canaan, among many of the things that they would do is that they would offer their children to the God of Moloch, have them walk through the fire, sacrificing their children. And God, when the children of Israel chose to follow these gods, allowed these people of these gods to rule over them. Now, there was an opportunity in Judges chapter 11. Jephthah, who is, a, uh, is described in Judges 11 verse 1 as the son of a harlot, but he was a judge used to deliver the Israelites out of the hand of their enemies, crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. So we see the Bible gives us an indication of who these people were, where they originated from, how he considered them, how he used them even to judge his own people in their sin. But also there were times in which he would give them victory over them as they were continually striving with the children of Israel. And so Nahash the Ammonite goes up and besieges Jabesh Gilead. And what do the people do? Well, they have no king. They basically surrendered any sort of uh, servitude to Samuel as the prophet. And so they start bartering a deal. How about making a treaty with us? We understand you're stronger. We understand that there's more of you than us. So I tell you what, if you will, just let's just make a peace treaty. And so uh, Nahash says, uh, well, instead of you creating the terms of this deal, I tell you what I'll do. I'll, I'll make a treaty with you. But what it's going to cost you is for me to be able to go through all the men of Israel and gouge out every right eye to bring shame upon you and then we'll have a treaty. Now at this point, you might be wondering what in the world's going on in the minds of the Israelites. First of all, you, you, you've become so weak that when your enemy comes in and besieges your town, that the first thing you wanna do is, hey, you know what, we give up. But your enemy won't let you just give up. It's gonna cost you something, something gruesome. So they said to, to Nahash, can you give us a week to think about it? As if this, this, is this, is this was some sort of acceptable option. So just give us a respite. Just give us seven days and, and let us go see if there's anyone strong enough among our people that can, that can defeat you. Now, I used to think, and, I, and I, to some extent I still do, I, I question the military tax that's over the source of, of, of history, and particularly when you think about the Revolutionary War, and when, it's, when you see depictions of it at least, uh, you know, you got this line of, of people on both sides, they, they all have guns, and they both shoot each other. And then it stops. Then the next group comes up and points their guns at each other, and they shoot. 
and it stops. And then the next line, if you have another line, it comes up. And then soon enough, you start looking around and seeing you're the only person in that line, and you start running the other way. Now, again, I've, I don't, I've never understood. Now, it, it may have been gentlemanly to fight that way. It might have been organized and administrated properly according to good military warfare tactics. But that doesn't hold a candle to Nahash saying, okay, <laughs> tell you what, he's, he's obviously so confident they're not going to find anyone. He says, okay, yeah, take yourself a week. Go see if you can find somebody who can save you from me. Now, when the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and the scriptures do not tell us that they found someone to save them. The scriptures tell us that all the people cried like a baby. This was a very distressing situation, was it not? You find yourself outnumbered, overpowered. You find yourself, there. you scour through the land for a week and you can't find anyone who will lead your people into battle to fight this enemy that you know very well. And all they were left to do was to cry. All the people wept aloud. And this is not the first time, but thankfully, this is all a part of God's sovereign plan to raise up a king as they demanded. So in verse five, we, we read on. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen and he said, what's the matter with all the people? that they weep. So they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then, then, then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily when he heard these words and he became very angry. He took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. He numbered them in Bezek, and the sons of Israel were 300,000, the men of Judah, 30,000, and then they said to the messengers who had come, thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So the messengers went, told the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Then the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will come out to you that you may do to us whatever seems good to you. The next morning, Saul put the people in three companies. They came into the midst of the camp at the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Wow, what a difference in, in just a few verses. And it had nothing to do with what Saul brought to the table had nothing to do because they finally found a man who was military trained, who could whip people into, into fit shape in just a moment's notice and have everybody. No, it wasn't, had anything to do with Saul's wisdom. Had nothing to do with Saul sitting down and thinking, you know what, I'm just so overwhelmed with anger of how 
badly they're treating our people. I'm just going to go out and just going to let them have it. Now, I love the words. Then the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. This had everything to do not with Saul, but with God. Now, the working of the Holy Spirit at this point and equipping and empowering Mill to do, deal the Word of God has been kind of expressed in different ways. Let's just kind of go back and review some of those. In Exodus chapter 31, as God was giving instruction, uh, as, as we're you know, thinking about through the equip hour of how God has preparing all the instrumentation, all the, the furniture, all, all the things that are going on. The Lord said to Moses in Exodus 31, See, I have called by my name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. In other words, God filled his servant with the Spirit of God so that he could just simply design and build and create what God had given instruction to do in relation to the worship of God. Interesting. Numbers chapter 24, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Lord to bless Israel, he did not go as at other times to look for omens, but set his face towards the wilderness. And Balaam lifted up his eyes and saw Israel coming tribe by tribe and the Spirit of God came upon him. So while it filled Bezalel, the, 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 the furniture manufacturer, with Balaam, this prophet, that we were told that the Spirit of God came upon him and he took up his discourse. So God used this, what we have described for us by Peter, a, a false prophet being used by God because he fills him with his spirit. In Judges chapter 6, verse 34, that the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon, and he sounded a trumpet, and the Bezrites were called out to follow him. So, filling, coming upon him, clothed, Judges chapter 11, what we were referring to earlier, then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. And he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and it just so happened, and, and Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, I will give you the Ammonites into my hand. So here we have the Ammonites that are now, again, confronting God's people in Saul's day, that the reason why Jephthah was able to defeat them was because the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. So being clothed with the Spirit, having the Spirit upon them, uh, being filled with the Spirit, there are different ways in which it, it's described how the Spirit made impact upon the people God was using. Judges 13, and a woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir. Later on in chapter 14 and 15, then the Spirit of the Lord rushed, upon Samson. And we have that term used at least three different times here uh, in Samson's life. So again, here's another description of how the Spirit impacts 
the lives of those who God uses. Now, again, let's recall from last passage, the passage that Pastor Tim preached on in 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign unto you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. When you depart from me today, you'll meet two men. Later on, he says, then you shall go from there farther. And three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there. Later on, he says, after that, you shall come to Gilbeth Elohim. And there you shall, you, as soon as you come into the city, you'll meet a group of prophets. Then the Spirit of God, or I'm sorry, the Spirit of Yahweh will rush upon you. And you will prophesy with them. And be, <laughs> and be turned into another man. You will not be the same man, Saul, when the Holy Spirit rushes upon you. And you will prophesy. And when these signs meet you this is great do what your hand finds to do for god is with you just a little side note has nothing to do with the rest of this message but just a little side note for individuals who are looking for the will of god particularly when it's not in black and white print in the pages between genesis and revelation understand with the holy spirit filling you controlling your life, do what your hand finds to do because the Lord is with you. Now, if the Holy Spirit is not guiding your life, then guess what? You better step back because then you're going to be making decisions on your own. But here in Saul's life, the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you and you will prophesy, be turned into another man. And when these signs meet you, do whatever your hands find to do because the Lord, for God, is with you. So, the same Saul, who did not seem to be too enthusiastic about, about being king, suddenly finds himself being used by God, and it had nothing to do with him. It had everything to do with the Lord. The Lord prophesied this was going to happen. When it happened, when the Spirit rushed upon Saul, he became a different man. He became a man who is now organizing armies. A man who could not find his father's animals out in the woods is now getting together an army that's going to, before the, before the day gets hot, is going to defeat these people who were all of a sudden, they were willing to give up their right eye for to serve them because they didn't want to fight. Now all of a sudden, Saul says in his holy indignation, anger, I'm cutting up this oxen, and anybody who doesn't follow me in Samuel and into the warfare, I'm going to do the same thing to your ox. <laughs> now, that's motivational warfare talk right there, buddy. You want somebody to fight, you cut your ox up and say, I'm going to do the same thing to yours if you don't follow me in the war. But he was a different man. The Spirit of God had rushed upon him. And they found victory. Notice that when Saul was turned into a different man, the response of the people. As we look in our passage, uh, once he 
chopped up the ox. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people. Not the dread of Saul, not the intimidation factor here, but the fear of the Lord. In other words, a fear that was inspired by Jehovah himself. One commentary put it this way, in Saul's energetic appeal, the people discerned the power of the Lord, which inspired them with fear and impelled them to immediate obedience. Now, I'm not suggesting that we wait on Pastor Scott next Sunday when he's planning to bring the message to come up and threaten us. If we don't do certain things and certain things are going to happen to us, but you know what we should expect and what you should expect from all the elders when we teach? There's certain, there, there should be a certain zeal. There should be a certain fervor for the truth of God's word preached and taught within the compassion that's found in Christ that drives you, not because of what we're saying or how we're saying it, but, but who is saying it through us. Pastor Scott mentioned that earlier in our, in our CGG as we were talking about the Word of God. That when we worship on Sunday morning, part of that is not hearing him or Charlie or Tim or myself ourselves speak, but to understand that as we are speaking, this is being spoken. And that should have an impact. As the Holy Spirit who inspired it, preserved it, and teaches it, and applies it, it's making us more like Christ. It's preparing us every Sunday that we walk back out through those doors, that we are prepared, that we're motivated, and that we too, like the people of Israel, know the dread of the Lord. Now, we, we began with a very uh, depressing, distressing situation, which led to a momentous incident. An incident in which the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul, making him a completely different person. But there was also a proper response that we see in the last part of our passage. Then the people said, Samuel, which technically, and we should actually read this. Then the people questioned Samuel, who is it that said Saul should reign over us? Now everybody, you see the difference here? It's not just a matter of Saul being able to just kind of retreat back home and not tell anybody about what Samuel has prophesied over his life about being king. Now the people themselves, having seen Saul bring them victory over the Ammonites, are now saying, now who, in the, who around here said that Saul shouldn't be king? Let's, what should we do to them? Nothing about chopping up their ox. They said, bring them in that we may put them to death. Wow. You're talking about a solid following, at least for a moment. Of course, we realize how frickle these people are how temporary they are in their 
you know, adherent or, or allegiance to anything or anybody. But at this point, they're like, let's kill him. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. If we could only just sort of put that in a, just protect that right there and just keep it. And, and just hold on to this right here and believe it and to, and to cling and hope to it and expect it going further and to just to know that for today the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. We know the rest of the story, don't we? That was very rarely the case in the past and it would be very rare in the future. But here is one day that Saul is calling it exactly the way it is. And he says, the Lord has accomplished deliverance in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. And you might say, renew it? Wait a minute, I didn't know it started. Well, actually, yeah, it did start. And because of the reluctance of, of, of doing it, let's renew it. Kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal and they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they offered sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. If we didn't know any better, we'd say, right. God is finally seeing his people acting the right way, doing the right things being who they're supposed to be and, and loving him for what he's done. So let's just hold on to that for a few weeks. <laughs> Pastor Tim will mess that up. I'm sorry. But that was a proper response, wasn't it? Now, again, this is a wonderful narrative that has very little to do pragmatically with our life today, at least when we think about the Ammonites, or we think about Saul, they're all gone. But you see, these things were written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So that's what we want going forward as we sing Christ, our hope in life and death, we, we want to go on. What hope do we have that we can find in 1 Samuel chapter 11? Well, I think that we can see some similarities in the day in which we live in what we saw in the first five verses of, of 1 Samuel chapter 11. We, we live in a very distressing time. And while it may have seemed like a stretch at some point in our life some time back, to think that there would be something even close to child sacrifice, we all know better than that. The Ammonites aren't the only ones in the course of history to do so. And I'm afraid that it continues on today. We know that there are still countless of babies who never make it out of their mother's womb because they're murdered. A choice. Selective. 
infanticide. But it's not just that. We're living in a world today that if you've paid any attention at all to anything that's going on in the news that's true, we're finding out some very troubling things about kids who do make it out of the womb for being stolen from their families and sold as slaves in human trafficking. that We don't like to talk about it a whole lot because it's so gruesome and it's so unacceptable in our, our way of life. We would never think that happens. But folks, we need to wake up. There are evil people in this world who are doing some just unthinkable things to children. That's the distressing situation that we find ourselves in today. It's not the only situation we find. I mean, we could go down a whole list of things that are wrong with the world in which we live. But we need to understand that we live in the enemy, the, the, the roaring lion that is seeking whom he may devour. He's not interested in any peace treaties. The evil people that we're having to confront in the world in which we live today is not saying, you know what, if you just gouge out your right eye, then I'll let you live in peace and just simply be my slave. No. The enemy in which we face isn't going to settle for that. He is scratching and clawing with all of his might, with all of his ability, within the sovereign plan of God, trying to destroy and to kill as much as he possibly can. That's the world in which we live. But thankfully, thankfully, we don't need to take seven days to go out into all the land and see if we can find a deliverer. We don't need to go out and try to search if there's someone who can figure out all of our problems. We don't need to wait until November 2024 to try to find out if something is going to make things different. And it has nothing to do with us any more than it had something to do with Saul back in 1 Samuel chapter 11. It has everything to do with the fact that Jesus Christ Pay the price. And just as we read, or it was read earlier for us in, our, in our, our service from Romans chapter 5, we now have one who justifies us by faith, which leads us into a relationship where we don't have to sit around like, and again, I want to be really careful here. But you may be watching something on TV, or you may be reading through a book, or maybe listening to something on a podcast. I started to say radio, but I don't think we listen to that anymore. Uh, but you might be having something communicated to you that may use a lot of different type of terms for the Holy Spirit impacting a person's life. I mean, again, we, we refer to some of them, you know, filled with, clothed with, was upon, uh, stirred up by, rushed upon, all those types of things. But let me give you a word that is really, really essential for your life as a believer that is, is related to your relationship. Is that redundant? It's related to your relationship with God. And it's found 
in Romans chapter 8. So if you will take your Bibles and turn with me there. Don't have it on the screen. You're going to have to work for this one. Romans chapter 8. Because for our distressing situation, we need to have a momentous incident ourselves. We need to have something that is really going to change us ourselves. So beginning in verse 1 of Romans chapter 8. Now again, think about this in the world of sin, this fallen world in which we live in, that demonstrates itself through heinous things against not only the young defenseless ones in our world, but to all of us in sin. A sin, by the way, we were participants in. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The same Christ Jesus that justifies us by faith found in Romans chapter 5. For the law of the spirit of life. Pastor Scott's been talking a lot about the difference between law and the gospel and the book of Galatians. This law of the spirit of life is not a bondage. This law of the spirit of life is exactly what it says. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, which we celebrated this morning over the Lord's table. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's the flesh. Not Saul. Not in his wisdom. Not in what he did, but the Spirit of God rushed upon him. We fulfill in us, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 5, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind is set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It wants to gouge out your right eye. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Pay close attention, verse 9. However... You, who's you, you are in Christ, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit, what? What's what? Spirit dwells, indwelling, not rushing upon you, not clothing you, not even stirring you up. Now, all of those things may be similar to what happens to the believer in Christ, but there is a new word that the Old Testament does not use about the Spirit in relation to God's people, and that is this word, dwell. This is a precious word. This is a word that while there are so many other things that we could talk about the Holy Spirit, that we go to John chapter 15 and 16, we could go to Ephesians chapter 6, we could go to countless different places to look about the Spirit of God, but there is nothing so important as the fact that those of us who are in Christ are no longer in the flesh, but the Spirit of God dwells, dwells in you. 
What is He dwelling in you? He's guaranteeing. He has sealed you. He is empowering you. He is instructing you. He's convicting you of sin. This is a precious, precious thing. In the world that is so distressing, regardless of how incredibly bad it gets, if we are in Christ, if we have placed our dependence upon what Christ did on the cross as a payment to not only take the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin, but to also apply to us His righteousness. We're no longer in the flesh. Yes, we're, we're fleshly and we're waiting for a new body. But until then, the Spirit of God dwells in us. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. This is better than Saul saying, I chopped up my oxen to give you an example that if you don't follow me, I'm going to do the same thing to your oxen. This is a great thing to motivate us. Because in spite of all the turmoil, I mean, even he goes into verse 18, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. How am I supposed to hope in that? Because the Spirit dwells in me. It's not because I've figured it out. It's not because I've done enough exercise to, to be fit enough to do it. It's not because I'm righteous enough in myself. But it's because the Spirit of God, more than clothing me, more than rushing upon me, more than just a fleeting feeling, but He dwells in me. And guess what that does? It does the same thing for me eternally as it did temporarily for Saul when God, the Spirit of God rushed upon him. It changes me into a different man. For behold, old things passed away. All things are new for those who are in Christ, right? And what should that do? <laughs> response. What's your response to that? Huh? Okay, cool. How much money do I have in my banking account again? Well, that's wonderful news there, Mark. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. But you know what? I got a really rough week at work coming up. I, I do, you know, I, I got to get on and start planning some things out on, you know, you know, what we're going to have for for supper and. Uh, you know, how we're going to get the kids to the game and practice. And, uh, you know, school's coming up. I got to go out and buy some clothes and some supplies for them to have pencils and all this kind of stuff. I, just, I don't have time for all. How do you not have time for all this? Well, well, the ball game's going to be starting here in about an hour. I need to make sure we get home in time for after we've eaten lunch to be able to. to really? It's not that we stop doing any of that stuff, but, but where's our anchor? What's our response to, to this? Well, let me give you a, a clue to what our response will be one day when we finally get it right. Uh, for, turn over to Revelation chapter 21. I was afraid uh, we were going to get, uh, when we were talk, talking about Revelation chapter 19 earlier. 
Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Have you heard this before? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, at the throne of heaven, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. Now, Again, right now, Romans chapter 8 makes it really clear that we should be holding on and, and really enjoying the fact that the Spirit of God dwells in us. And as wonderful as that is, it's going to get infinitely better because the tabernacle of God is among men and He will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he shall wipe away every tear from their eye, and there will be no longer any death, and there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. What's our response to that? Praising the Lord, glorifying the Lord, singing to the Lord. You pick your chapter in Revelation, it's, it's, it's in there. All for eternity. Why? Because just like Samuel said, you know what? Now that we've seen the Lord work, he has delivered the enemy into our hand. Let's now renew the kingdom. <laughs> Man, I'm really looking forward to some new kingdom. I'm looking forward to a new kingdom that will have no end. Why? Because the king will reign forever and ever. There is no reign or no ending to his reign. And when he comes back, he's going to make everything right. And that's the king that we have today. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of the Father right now. And all he needs to do is hear from the Father, it's time. That gives me hope even in a land that is so despicable that the most heinous things can take place in the world in which I live and I have no control over. But you know what? The Holy Spirit is indwelling me, making me into a new person so that I can do and so those good works that will last forever and be reaped throughout all of the kingdom of God when he comes back and that kingdom is renewed. And I pray that Cornerstone, that's where our hope until Christ comes back will always be. Always be in Jesus Christ, our Savior, our, our, our true living and God willing, soon coming King. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are thankful that while we still live in a land of despair, a land in which things that go beyond shameful are practiced, 
We thank you, Lord, even then we do not have to search far at all to find one who will deliver us from the enemy who seeks to destroy our life. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your spirit as your people. I pray earnestly that if there is anyone within the sound of my voice that cannot relate to having been baptized in the spirit because they trust in God, not because of anything that they did, not because of any steps that they took, but just simply because they placed their faith in the finished work of Christ to save them from your wrath and to give them your righteousness so that they could live with you forever. I pray that if there is no feeling or any awareness of that, that Lord, you would open their eyes to your truth, that they would have hope in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and that we as your people, even as that same spirit that indwells us would empower us to, and give us authority to go into all the world and preach the gospel, to go and make disciples of all nations, to be witnesses, even to the uttermost parts of the world. I pray, Lord, now that as you apply this truth of your word to your people and to our hearts, may we leave here motivated, ready to follow our King, ready to serve him, ready to do and to go wherever, to whomever. We thank you, Lord, and pray that your blessing would be upon the application of your word. We ask this in Christ's name.